This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. It's great to be together. A lot of uh, a lot of folks in the second service, a lot of you guys may be newer um, around uh, around this time, so really want to welcome you if you're newer, and certainly want to, um, I'd like to piggyback on a previous announcement and just invite you out next week uh, to the uh, to the to the welcome home class, and uh, certainly if you'd like to know more about the church, you're not there is no commitment expressed or implied by showing up there. You're welcome to come and never come back. I mean, we hope that didn't happen, but you're you're welcome to come. You're not uh, you're just coming to find out more about the church, and so we'd love to. Offer that to you and, and welcome you, and it's a question and answer time, and so you can get to know us, and uh, hopefully we can provide some information for you about the church. If you'd like to join the church at the end of that, you're welcome to do so, but love to, love to uh, invite you out to that next week. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13. We're in a series from going through 12 through 14, and today I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're only going to talk about three verses. Um, this is a very important chapter, 13, we're going to spend three weeks on it. So today we'll just look at verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us expressed in Jesus Christ And we pray today that you would give us a fresh glimpse of your love and show us how that we can express that love to others for your glory, Lord. I pray that you would help us to really understand what this passage is all about and that you would change us to make us more a people of gospel love, Lord. We pray that you would change us, each of us. Lord, each of us wants to know you better and to grow in love, and we pray that in the next few minutes we have in this passage that you would speak the God-breathed word to us and that you would change us. Help us to hear and to respond for your glory. Lord, grant me strength and clarity of mind, I pray. Fill me with your spirit. Fill all of us with your spirit. 
as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, this is one of the most quoted passages in all the Bible. A very familiar passage. I mean, some would, some would say that uh, from a literary standpoint that it's one of the greatest poetic expressions in all the Bible. It's frequently quoted, isn't it? It's frequently quoted at weddings. If you've been to many Christian weddings, you've probably heard this passage read. Uh, it may appear, I haven't, I haven't proven this, I haven't tested this, but it's certainly possible that it may appear in a Christian Valentine card or something, right? Because it's a statement about love. And so we're not teaching on love because this is Valentine's week or something like that. We just happen to hit this at this time. But it occurs to me that this is something that is frequently used to talk about love. But as we have gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a couple sections, and then all of chapter 12, and talked a lot about the Corinthian church, as we've done that, it's become clear that this chapter loses a lot of its power when it's taken out of its context. It loses a lot of its application if we just sort of remove it and let it stand on its own. It's true on its own. What this passage says about love is true. If we just read this and don't read anything else, it's true. But it's spoken in a context. It's not like Paul was saying, well, these people are having a lot of fights and a lot of battles and there's disagreements. And we're talking about, you know, spiritual gifts. So maybe I'll just take a pause here and drop in a nice poem that'll help everybody. You know, let me go to my files and, you know, I don't know, Footprints in the Sand or the Love Poem. We'll just put one of these in here and sort of share it to make everybody feel warm. And that's not what he's doing. He's not just sort of putting this isolated love poem in here. He is writing about love because it particularly applies to the Corinthians. As we've been saying, the Corinthians really don't have a spiritual gifts problem. They don't really have an abuse of the gifts problem. They have a lack of focus on Jesus Christ problem and a lack of expressing love to others problem. The Corinthian problem is a problem of lovelessness between members in the church and presumably with others outside of the church as well. But that is the problem. And so Paul, talking about spiritual gifts in all of chapter 12, ends with the last statement in chapter 12, I will show you a more excellent way, and he's going to talk now about love. If you want to experience the Holy Spirit's activity, if you want to see the Spirit pulsating in the life of the church, breathing life among God's people, then listen to this, Paul says. Listen to this. I want to tell you about love because it's not the spiritual gifts themselves that are proof of the Holy Spirit's activity. It's the motive behind those gifts. It's the way they're expressed. It's the purpose of those gifts, which is to express the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul's going to go on and say, look, without love, none of the other stuff really matters. And he's going to say spiritual gifts without love don't really matter. And good works without love don't really matter. He's even going to say radical sacrifice without love doesn't really matter. One commentator uh, used this little mathematical equation, and I found it helpful. So this is for all the people who are into math in the room. I hope this encourages both of you. This is what he said. Spiritual gifts... Minus love 
equal zero. That's what Paul's saying. Spiritual gifts minus love equals zero. And in verse 3, we're only going to look at the first three verses. In verse 3, he's going to talk about sacrifice minus love equals zero. And so those are the two points that I'm going to make today as we look at this text. First of all, gifts minus love equal zero. Paul begins by talking about speaking in tongues because that is the primary issue, the presenting problem. It's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is love. But the presenting problem in Corinth is tongues. And so he says in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now we'll talk about tongues in some detail in chapter 14 and prophecy because that's what Paul talks about there. But what he's doing here is before he gets there, he is speaking in a very pastoral way. Note what he does. He doesn't stand across the street and lob judgment bombs on the Corinthians. He doesn't you know, stand across the street and point a long bony finger in their face and say, you people. He rather identifies. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. So he's, he's coming alongside them. Now in chapter 14, we're going to see that Paul himself speaks in tongues and says that he does it more than the Corinthians. So he's identifying here with this gift. He's not disparaging this gift. He is disparaging their practice, their usage of this gift, however. So he says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, chapter 14 is going to make clear that uh, speaking in tongues is, is speech to God. It's not to people. Uh, Paul makes clear in chapter 14 that speaking in tongues is speech to God. You may give thanks to God, he says, through this. It is speaking to God. So it's it's more of a prayer. It's a vertical type of speech. Um, and it's speech in a language that the speaker does not know. And that's part of the problem of what's happening there because people don't know what's being said in the congregation. So it's speech to God in a language that the speaker does not know, but God does know. And he says, if you speak in a human language, and he even opens up this idea, or of, a, of an angelic language, if you have a heavenly dialect. Now, did Paul think that speaking in tongues was a human language or a heavenly language? Uh, he doesn't confirm nor deny that. Probably what is likely, though, is the Corinthians thought it was an angelic language, whether it is or not. Um, whether it is or not, what Paul's going to make clear in chapter 14 is it requires interpretation because nobody understands if it's spoken publicly. So he's saying that even if you could speak like an angel, a heavenly dialect, and you didn't have love, that would be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's saying even a gift like this, it must be exercised in love. Now, what's he? why would he say that? Because the Corinthians used this gift, and they didn't use it in a loving way. So if I start speaking right now in a language that no one in the room knows, you're really not going to get anything out of it. It's not going to be encouraging. It's not going to benefit. You're not going to go home and say, wow, God really encouraged me today. You're going to go home and say, that guy's a nut job because he spoke to us. We didn't understand one thing he said, which sometimes happened when I preach in English. That can happen as well. So I don't, I don't have to, you know, Paul says tongues are unintelligible. Well, I, I'm better than that. I can preach in English and be unintelligible when everybody understands. But um, So that's what he says. So here's what the Corinthians were doing. We'll see this next chapter. What they're doing is they're standing up, and multiple people are speaking in a language and no one understands. And what he says is, you may be giving thanks to God. So he doesn't say it's not a gift. God understands, but no one else does. So you're not building up the church. 
What's he saying? You're having a spiritual experience. The person who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but not the church, the Bible says, unless there's interpretation. So you're having a spiritual experience, but nobody's getting anything out of it. Nobody's benefiting. That's not loving. If you're using your gift and it's not benefiting other people, that's not love. Matter of fact, he goes on and he says, if everybody in the church is doing this, they're speaking in these languages, they don't know what's going on, and an outsider walks in, he says, they will think, this is what he says in chapter 14, that you have lost your mind. It's literally what he says. So you're not thinking about an unbeliever. You're not thinking about a new Christian. You're not thinking about a Christian who's never seen this before. You're thinking about you and your spiritual experience. They come in, you're doing this, they'll think you are nuts that you've lost your mind. And so they won't love Jesus. They won't want to know about Jesus. They won't hear the gospel. They'll write you off as whack, and it'll it'll ruin. You're not expressing a care and a love for other people. You're expressing your own desires, what he's saying. And so he has to give them, like, etiquette. You know, have two or at the most three speak. They have to speak one at a time, he's going to say, and there has to be an interpretation for each one of these things that they're saying to God in a tongue. So... I mean, the reality is a lot of us have never heard two or three tongues in a public assembly in our entire lives, and he's having to limit that every Sunday to just two or three because it is a, it, it, it's a, it, it's a tongues fest. That's just what it, everybody's just gathering and speaking in tongues. So he's having to bring this limitation. Why? Because they are not expressing love. They're into self-edification at the expense of community edification. And he says, when it's all about self-building yourself up and not building up others, here's what it's like. It's like a gong or it's like hitting a cymbal or, you know, a clanging cymbal. Now we have cymbals up here. We like cymbals. We're a church that uh, welcomes cymbals. You can find cymbals in Psalms. I think Psalm 150 mentioned cymbals. I don't remember exactly, but you can find that in the Bible. So we've got cymbals, but we also have a drum set that goes with it. And we also have an acoustic guitar, and we also have a bass, an electric guitar, and a synth, and a keyboard, and vocalists. Because a cymbal is fine if it's used sparingly with other instruments. So we sang maybe, I don't know, 30 minutes a day. But if we dismissed everybody from the stage, and Josh just brought out a cymbal and banged on a cymbal for 30 minutes it would start to get a little annoying, like about 30 seconds into it. It'd be shrill. It'd be, oh, come on. What kind of church is this? This is annoying. Just banging the cymbal. No one would be benefited by that. No one would say, that was beautiful. That was, I just could really sing to the Lord for 30 minutes of a cymbal. And he's saying, if you stand up and use a gift of tongues, any gift really, but here he's saying tongues, and you don't love other people, it's like banging a cymbal. It's just meaningless. It's not musical. It's meaningless after a while. And that's what he is saying. Tongues minus love equals zero. And you're not loving in the way you're using it, Corinthians. And he goes on, verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries. So he's going to talk about in chapter 14, Prophetic gifts, and he doesn't say it's necessarily a foretelling type of telling the future type of gift, but it is communicating something that the Lord brings to mind that edifies and builds up and comforts and consoles the church. And uh, he's really for it. He says, eagerly desire this gift because it builds up the church. So Paul's all for prophecy. He speaks in tongues, but he's all, and he's all for prophecy. So he's not bashing these gifts. Um, in chapter 14, he's going to talk a lot about this. But he says, if you have prophetic gifts 
And you understand all mysteries, nobody does. But if you did, and usually the word mystery, oftentimes in the New Testament, it's talking about an unveiling. It's not talking about something that's ultimately unknown. It's the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ and who he is. So if you have all these prophetic powers, if you can speak words that the Lord lays on your heart that exalt Jesus and reveal the mystery of grace and salvation in Jesus Christ, if you can do all of that, wow. But you don't love people. You're not doing it out of care for them. You're promoting your own gift, wanting to hear the sound of your own voice, amazed by your own talent and insight. Hey, if you're not loving, if it's not a gift used to build people up because you care more about them than you do yourself, then it's, it's a waste is what he says. Prophecy minus love equals zero. He says, uh, if you have all knowledge, the Corinthians were into knowledge. So if you have, you know, biblical knowledge or if the Lord gives you an utterance, a, a word, of knowledge and you share that, but you don't, you don't love people. It's not a love for others. Then he says, I am nothing. He says, if I have all faith, so much faith that I could, you know, remove mountains. I mean, it's a hyperbole there. He's saying that'd be tremendous faith. So much faith. You could trust God so much that you could believe that God's going to move a mountain over here. (laughs) And that is serious faith. If you have that much faith, but you don't love, you're not exercising that gift with love, you have not love, then you are nothing. I am nothing. Because faith minus love equal zero. Philip Ryken, in an excellent book on 1 Corinthians 13 that's just come out, he, he, he said this, what matters most is not how gifted we are, but how loving we are. What matters most is not how gifted we are, but how loving we are. That's ultimately not gifts versus love. It's gifts minus love are meaningless and gifts motivated by the spirit and love for God and love others. That makes a difference. That makes a difference. But ultimately it is love. You remember last week we looked in 1 Corinthians 12 and the foot was comparing itself with a hand and the foot said, if I'm not a hand, then I'm nothing. Where's the love in that? That's really the problem with that. The foot is saying, I want to be a hand and I'm not a hand. So since I'm not, I don't belong. I wish I was a hand. Boy, hands are always, you know, reaching out and shaking and handing and grabbing and doing and moving. And man, hands are really active. I wish I was a hand. Where's the love in that? I'm wanting to be someone else. I'm not wanting to serve others. Love is whatever I am, I'm a foot, then let's get moving. Let's start walking for the Lord out of love for other people. How can I get us over there to serve somebody? How can I get us over there to speak to somebody? How can I get us over there? Because we love them. Because Christ loves them and the love of God's compelling us. So comparing isn't loving others. Or he also says, we read this last week, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The eye can't say, I don't need a hand. I can see everything. I don't need any hand. That's an unimportant part to me. Where's the love in that? Paul says, even the weaker part should be given greater honor. They're needed. They're indispensable. That's love. So the previous illustration really related to love as well. If there are dramatic gifts without love, what is the purpose? They don't mean anything. At best, they're a clanging symbol gifts minus love equals zero the next thing he's going to say is that good works minus love equal zero 
Look at what he says in verse 3. If I give away all that I have. Now, that's a very noble act. I'm, I'm assuming that what he means, if I give what I have to help someone else. If I give to the poor. Now, he doesn't just say, if I give a donation to the poor. Or if I feed a homeless person. Um, or if I provide you know, a set of clothes and a few meals for an orphan. He says, if I give away everything I have, the greatest imaginable physical giving of myself, all my possessions gone, and I assume that would be to help others, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Well, how could you do that without love? Oh, that'd be easy. We can do all kinds of things without love. We can give to be recognized. We can give because we feel good about ourselves when we give. He's saying if you don't give motivated by God's love for another person, if you're not even doing an an act of tremendous sacrifice because you the love of God has affected you and you love others, then it's of no account. And then he takes it up to the ultimate level, and he says in... uh, Verse 3 after that, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Seems like he's talking about martyrdom here or something like that. If I give up my very life, offer my life, what can you give more than that? He just went infinity. I mean, that's the ultimate thing that you can do. I, I that That's the card that trumps all others. If I die and am burned... But don't do that for love. I am nothing. If I make a sacrifice for pride or stubbornness or something like that, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about love? I'm going to jump out of this text a little bit, but stay in the same book. Um, Paul, uh, when he is talking about love, he starts with a certain... Image. He starts with a certain idea. He starts with a certain concept. So he's not just saying humanitarian niceness. Uh, he's not just saying good feelings. He's not, when he's thinking love, it's not just an emotional <clears throat> feeling towards someone. Um, it's not just doing something thoughtful. But he starts somewhere else. And in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, this is how Paul defines the grid through which he looks at everything. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, which is what they were into, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he knew. So when I came to town and told everybody about the gospel and told everybody about what it means to live the Christian life, this is what I told you about. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The good news that God, the holy God of the universe, became a man in Jesus, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Our sins were laid upon Jesus. Jesus was punished for our sins. God poured out his wrath upon his own son who died in our place so that we could be freely forgiven for all of our many sins. We can be freely forgiven by just receiving the gift of what he's done, turning from our sin, turning to God, and receiving what Jesus did for us. We receive forgiveness. That is the ultimate love. And so when he thinks of love, he's not thinking like, well, 
forget chapter two. He's still building off that. The whole book is being built off what he said in the beginning. Hey, look, here's what I'm about. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when that good news, gospel means good news, when that gospel, that good news invades your life, and grants you new life, Jesus Christ does that, his love touches you, then it's going to affect you to love other people. So he's not just talking about, let's be nice here, here's the rules of niceness, or here's a syrupy kind of Hallmark Channel definition of love, where we all just sort of feel something and need a tissue. Uh, He's talking more about, this is love, it's bloody, it's a man hanging on a cross, with spit running down his face and wounds in his body and people mocking him and laughing at him and deriding him, beating him, walking by in utter disgust, taunting him, saying, if you're God, come down, save yourself. And that God receiving all of that abuse because he loves you and he loves me. That's love. That's what he's talking about. And so when he says love, and we'll see next week when he's talking about love is patient, kind, I mean, that's a portrait of Jesus if everyone was written. That is ultimately what he talks about. This is what the scripture says. Think about Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, this is what Paul writes in another book. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does God show love? Well wishes. No, God shows love by sending Jesus to die for sinners, not good people, not people that are leaning in and looking to God, sinners. The Bible says that we're we're his enemies. God comes after us with love and makes a way where there is no way. That's love. God shows his love for us. And that love is to affect our heart, to melt our heart, to stir our heart, so that we want to express that love to other people. This is how it, uh, 1 John uh, John writes it in 1 John. This is the other John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. It's as worthy of memorization, I think, as John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, see Christ, we're aware of Christ, uh, considering who Jesus is, what he's done, that he laid down his life for us. That is to affect us, He showed his love to us, and so now we are to show that love to others. Not, we show love to others so Jesus will love us. That's what it says. Go do good so that God will love you. Come to church so that God loves you. Give some money to a needy person so that God loves you. Absolutely not. God loves you, and the way you know that is he laid down his life. He gave his life for you. Grace, mercy, kindness. Now allow that love to shape your view and response to others so that you show love to them. Love is the fruit of a life built on Jesus Christ. Love is the fruit of a church built on Jesus Christ. So back to the context. The starting place is not gifts. Starting place is Jesus and his love. The starting place is not sacrifice. Give everything I have away. Give my very life. No, the starting place is Jesus Christ and his love so that when we're affected by him, we express that love to others. Here's a really interesting phrase that we don't use this phrase exactly this way that often. But in chapter 13, you'll look at what he, what Paul contrasts, kind of a loveless gifts with gifts that are expressed when we have love. Look at uh, verse 1. 
if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers uh, and I have all faith, remove mountains, but have not love. Verse 3, if I give all that I have and if I deliver up my body, but have not love, I gain nothing. So he's saying when we exercise gifts, when we sacrifice, when we do good works, we're to do them in a way that we have love. We have love. One commentator on 1 Corinthians named Gordon Fee wrote this, to have love is to be toward others the way God in Christ has been toward us. To have love is I respond to you in a way that God has responded to me in Jesus Christ. Really, because he's responded to me. He loved, we love one another because he first loved us. So how do we have love? We respond to one another the way God has responded to us in Jesus Christ. If we are pursuing Jesus, we will be pursuing love. Apparently, the, Christ, the Corinthians are not pursuing Christ and the message of the gospel in a central way. They're pursuing other things. One of the things they're pursuing is gifts. And so he's saying, you've got to reorient this. You've got to pursue love. You've got to pursue love. A couple points of application and we're done. Um, we are, just what I was saying, we are to pursue love and not gifts. Look over at chapter 14, if we could get ahead a little bit. I think this statement is thematic for the passage we just read. 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Are spiritual gifts important? Absolutely. Does Paul think they're important? Absolutely. He's saying, pursue, you know, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul is on board. But they're not preeminent. And they're not the motivating factor. That's why he says, pursue love and desire gifts. Sometimes we can get messed up and we can pursue gifts and desire love if it comes our way. But he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. I think this is an important idea of pursuing love and as, as primary and desiring gifts as secondary. Here's where I think this really can affect us. A common question that's asked, I've asked this question, and this is a good question. This is not a correction. If you've asked me this question after one of the services, I'm not taking this moment to uh, parade your question. I've been asked this several times. I've asked this. It's, it's not like you, it's not bad. But here's the question. How do I know what my spiritual gifts are? How do I know if I'm a foot or a hand or an eye? You know, I want to do my part in the body of Christ. So how do I know? I don't really know what my gifts are. How do I know? Well, there's a few approaches to that. One approach that I used to take, not in this church, but the church I uh, served in previously, was we had like a booklet. It was a, an, a kind of a test, an inventory, a spiritual gifts test. I mean, leave it to America. I, I just think if you go plant a church, uh, you know, in uh, in Asia or Central America or Africa and you introduce the gospel to them, I don't think they read this the first time and say, could we have an inventory and evaluation like a person, you know, like a personality test? That is so us. That is just not where other people are. But it can be helpful. It can be helpful. And uh, the problem with it is, though, it's it's from your point of view, and they're really easy to see. If you know the gifts, it's really easy to see how these work because it'll ask you questions, and you say never, sometimes, or frequently. So when someone's hurting, I feel a sense of compassion. 
Oh, sometimes that might be talking about the gift of mercy, okay? So if I want to have the gift of mercy, I start thinking, oh, yeah, always, and check myself high. And, well, look at that. I've got the gift of mercy. Maybe I just wanted the gift of mercy. And it's, it's hard to do that on a test, right? Sometimes I pray for people, and they're resurrected from the dead. Frequently, you got the gift of miracles. I, we don't need a test. We need you down up here at ministry time every Sunday praying for people. We don't need a test. You pray and miracles happen. Okay, I think you know that. Sometimes I'm sitting around and I have a strange urge to speak in a language I don't know to God. You might have the gift of tongues. We don't need a 100-point question to figure that out, 100-question test. So that's one of the challenges, but it can be somewhat beneficial. So some of you have taken an inventory test. That can be helpful. Um, A better way can be to have those who know you communicate what gifts they see in your life. And so uh, that's hard to do if you don't really know the person, but we've done that in some of our small group meetings where, you know, and again, that's that's helpful to the degree you know people. But if you know someone then and you have a list of the gifts, then you might be able to look and say, hey, I do see, I, you know, I see God working through administration, or I think you have a teaching gift. It's budding, you know, you need to learn and grow and help the Lord develop that. But you can take truth and communicated in an orderly and a clear way. I think you have a teaching gift or something like that. So that can be really helpful if we know one another to say, hey, you know, here's what I see gifts or to ask your spouse who knows you well, or if you're not married, a close friend. These are good ways. How do I know what my gifts are? To ask others. Here's what I think is the best way. And what I just said is good. We're doing that in our small group. So I believe in that. But here's the best way. Pursue love and desire the spiritual gifts. Pursue love in a primary way, and the gifts will take care of themselves. I believe that if we're motivated by God's grace to love other people, he will give us every gift necessary at the time to serve, care, and build them up. So rather than praying, let's take the small group, for example. Rather than focusing, okay, I got the gift of administration. How can I use that? Lord, Lord, you know, just focusing on the gift of administration and how I can use that in the group. Or the gift of mercy, how can I use that in the group? Or the gift of prophecy, how can I build the group up by giving a prophetic word tonight at the group? And so I'm just concentrating on that gift. I think that can be pursuing gifts first rather than pursuing love. I think a better way to pray would be, Lord, I want to go to the group tonight. First of all, I want to show up. You know, the saying half of life is just showing up. I think about it's about half of the spiritual gifts is just being there and being available. You're halfway there at that point. I really believe that. If you're at home, you're not available. So, okay, I'm there. Lord, I want to pray that as I come to the group, I want to pray the list. Here's the people in the group. I want to pray for them by name. You know, build them up. Encourage them in this meeting. Speak to them. And, Lord, <clears throat> I make myself available. However you could use me. I pray that you would use me to build up others. And then when you're interacting with people with the attitude of how can I love, you just see what God does. So you may go and say, you've been praying for the group and someone's sharing a need in their life. Well, you've already been praying for them this week. You've already thought about them. You've already been saying, God, I'm open. If you would give me anything to help that person and they share something, all of a sudden a thought comes to your mind. And you share that, and they're like, whoa, that's really helpful. And the Lord just laid something on your heart. Or you're just listening, you're caring, and someone just happens to mention a need they have. Boom, you've been thinking, you're open. Well, I'm not sure I'm the greatest at that, but I'd be glad to come help you. I'd be glad to practice. I'm not sure I have the gift of helps, but I'll do what I can. And you're just available because you're pursuing God. You're pursuing loving others, and the Lord's giving you what you need along the way to meet others' needs. Pursue love and just see what God will do. It's not, do I have the gift of healing? Do I not? 
Jesus is the great healer. And someone's sick, let's pray for them. And let's ask God to touch them and to heal them now if that's what he desires to do. And if you're new here, we don't believe that God always heals. Sometimes he doesn't, but we do believe that he does. And we do believe we're called to ask. So let's ask and see what he does. So I don't have to be troubled by what's this gift of healing and all this. I just have to love people and they're hurting and there's no, there's no medical help for them and they're stuck. Let's cry out to God. Let's be available. Let's love and let's see what he does. Motivated by love. That's, I think, the best way. Pursue love and see how God uses you. And if you come across one of those tests, take the test if you want to. And if you want to share with others how you see their gifts, that's excellent. Encourage others, but ultimately, let's move in love. Not only pursue love, but I think we evaluate by love as well. I mean, this chapter is on its surface. You don't have to read far uh, to realize this is a convicting chapter, right? So we're going to have a lot of hope next week. So don't, I mean, don't skip or don't come like, oh, we're going to get hammered. Love is patient. Love is kind. That's convicting, though, right? Love is patient. I don't have to go past there to say, uh, okay, I need Jesus right now. Right? We don't. So next week, we'll look at this, and you come. We're gonna, there'll be a lot of hope attached to it because we're going to preach the gospel from that text, the good news. But this is a really convicting passage of Scripture, and it serves as an evaluative tool. It serves <clears throat> as a template for us to consider our own Christian lives, <clears throat> and for us to consider our church as well. I really think what he's doing to the Corinthians is he's saying, you evaluate your personal spirituality and your church's health and the spirituality of the church this way. Tongues, prophecy, other gifts. God evaluates it this way. Gifts expressed through love, but pursue love. Two different measurements. And so this is challenging for us to ask these questions about ourselves it's not legalistic to evaluate our life by Scripture. It's the kindness of God to call us to evaluate our lives. Because he's saying, if you do these gifts or if you do this service and there's no motive of love to it, it's nothing. Who wants to get to their life and find, at the end of their lives and find out all the stuff I did was motivated by legalism? All the stuff I did was motivated by looking good in front of others. All the stuff I did was motivating, motivated by pleasing other people and being religious. It counted for nothing. As opposed to, I'm acting empowered by the gospel, in light of the gospel, empowered by the spirit, motivated by love. And that counts. That makes a difference before the Lord and, and to others. I find this to be a helpful grid just to look at these first three verses. Now, it's easy for us to say, Something like this. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, I have not love. Okay, I don't speak in tongues, so that doesn't really affect me, if that's your case. And I sure don't speak in angel tongues, so I'm, I'm free there. Uh, moving mountains faith. Uh, I can't even wake up in the morning and have my quiet time. I certainly don't have that kind of faith. So that didn't apply to me. If I give away all that I have, never even occurred to me. And, uh, you know, martyrdom, hey, this is America. So this doesn't really, I mean, we can look at this and say, this doesn't apply to me. I, none of this is happening where I am. So I guess it doesn't matter. But we could put other things in there, couldn't we? Other spiritual gifts. If I pray but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I read my Bible but have not love, it profits me nothing. If I attend church, and I'm glad you're here, 
This isn't like, don't come back until you love Jesus. We're glad that you're here, regardless of the condition of any of our hearts today. And hopefully the Lord will meet us in this. But, but just attending a meeting isn't the goal. The goal is to encounter Christ and his gospel and then to be changed by the gospel so that we love other people. That's the goal, not just attending church. If I serve in children's ministry, but have not love. And by the way, whether you're loving or not, we do need slots filled. But um, so <laughs> I wouldn't say if you're not if you don't feel loving next Sunday, just don't show up. If you're in the elementary class, we need you. Just deal with your heart. Think about Christ and the gospel and apply it and then come loving. That's what we'd like to ask here. Um, but it's not just enough to serve. That may be a tremendous sacrifice for some of us to serve in that ministry, a real sacrifice. But if I'm not doing it motivated by love, it's, it's not honoring to the Lord, and it's not really serving others. If I'm not, if I'm not motivated to love those I'm with, to put the needs of those children above my own, to put their sp- spiritual well-being above my own, to see God's purpose for them, and to express the love of Christ as another adult who's not their parents express the love of Christ to them. Lord, help me. I want to be that kind of a servant. If I play on the worship team, but have not love, it profits nothing. It's I am nothing. If I, uh, if I avoid worldliness, if I don't have cable TV, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I just got a whole lot less channels. That's all I got. Profits nothing. If I only listen to Christian music but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love. If I evangelize but have not love. Now, some of us think that that's impossible. How could you evangelize and not be motivated by love? Oh, I think we can be motivated by a lot of things. I remember... I have this vivid memory that's convicting. I mean, the Lord's forgive me of this, so I'm not beating myself up over it. But I have this vivid memory of sharing the gospel with someone who was really, really bad in the world's eyes. Uh, it was a prisoner. And uh, so this was like the worst sinner from a legal point of view that I've, I'd ever witnessed to. And I could tell this guy was leaning in, and probably the Lord was going to save him through this conversation. And I remember while I'm sharing with him, having this thought, this is going to make a great testimony, a great story to tell about this. So I'm really motivated at that moment. I mean, I hope this guy gets saved because that'd be a notch on my belt. This would be great. This would be a really good sermon illustration someday to share about this guy. That's a small thing. But all of a sudden, my eyes are not on his need and the wrath of God, which he will face at death, it's on how will I sound having, how will I sound, what will I sound like having witnessed to a guy like this? And maybe I could just accidentally slip that in sometime and mention. So if I evangelize but have not love before the Lord, what does that profit me? If I give my money to missions but have not love, if I always attend the care group but have not love, if I am a diligent parent doing the right stuff that I heard about at the seminar but have not love, if I'm a dutiful spouse and I can line up on a punch list the stuff I've done for my wife or my husband but have not love. So we can find our own things to fit in here, can't we? And it applies to the church as well. Paul's talking to a whole church. It applies to us. 
If we have sound doctrine, which I believe in and am very serious about as a church, we are. If we have sound doctrine, but have not love. If we have expositional preaching and spend whatever we've talked here, 45 minutes on three verses, but have not love. I mean, James says, if you're a hearer and not a doer of the word, you deceive yourself. It's possible to gather and hear a sermon from the Bible and be worse off if I just think I'm better for having heard it, but don't apply it. Have not love. If we have a growing attendance, I mean, that's the ultimate, that's the gold standard for health in the life of a church in our culture. There's more people in the room, but have not love. There's more loveless people in the room at that moment. Have not love. If we have more activities and more programs, if we develop more leaders but have not love, if we plant churches but have not love, if we have a right governing structure but have not love, if we do small groups in the in a good way, but have not love, if we send people out on mission trips or even permanently to other nations but have not love, if we are trying to invite people our neighbors, but don't love them. If we build a building by God's grace on Frisco Square and take what is a a gift and begin to gather there but have not love, who cares? Why relocate to a more strategic environment and be loveless Christians? I'm not saying we're loveless, but I'm saying why, why would we want to do that? Love is what is so key. So here's how Paul talks to them about spirituality in chapters 12 and 13. You want to know about spirituality? Chapters 12, 1 through 3, uh, verses 1 through 3, he says this. When the Spirit is present, people will proclaim Jesus as Lord. When the Holy Spirit's in the room, people will be aware Jesus is great. He is Lord. Verses 4 through 11. When the Spirit is present, there will be a variety of gifts. Not everybody's cookie cutter. Not everybody's got the same gift. There's a variety of gifts. Verses 12 through 31. When the Holy Spirit's present, every part of the body will do its part. And every part of the body will be valued. Different people, different personalities, different gifts, different preferences. They'll be valued in Christ. Secondary matters will be secondary. And there will be unity around what is central. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the whole body will work together. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit's in the church. And verse chapter 13, when the Spirit is present, there will be love. This is how Paul evaluates a church. Corinth, Jesus is Lord. The gospel is celebrated and applied. Variety of gifts, the whole body doing its part. And the lesser parts, what are deemed lesser parts, weaker parts, They're honored with special honor. There's a love for what the world would call weaker people and weaker gifts in the church. Love for those kind. I sometimes think that how I, how we evaluate the church is so different, especially in the evangelical culture where we live. You want to come to my church? I'd like to invite you to my church. I'd like to come. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask you some questions about your church? Yeah. How big is it? How big is it? I, I've read the whole book of Corinthians, and he never mentions how many people were there. He just mentions what those people were like. And given what they're like, I hope it was a small church and not a big church, actually. <laughs> Spare the whole city of Corinth. 
How many people are there? Who's your pastor? Um, I don't know who the pastor at Corinth was because Paul didn't talk about that. I don't know. There wasn't, there wasn't a celebrity mindset in Corinth. Paul does just the opposite. He puts down celebrity. He said, I didn't come with wisdom. I didn't want you to be enamored with me and all that I had to offer. I wanted you to know about Jesus and him crucified. They ain't going to mention who the pastor was. They just want you to be aware of Jesus and him crucified. Tell me about the church. What kind of music do you play? I really don't know what kind of music they played. I do know that some of them sound like clanging cymbals, and that wasn't good. I know that, but I don't really know about that. It doesn't really seem to register when he evaluated the church. You know, is it more formal? Is the church more formal or more informal? Does the pastor wear a a robe, or is it more casual? And do I have to dress up? I don't know if people wore shorts. I don't know if they wore a toga in Corinth. I have no idea what, what their style was. Was this a hip church or was this kind of like an older aging church? Was it like a bunch of 80s, an 80s church, a 90s church, a 2000? What was your style? What was your music? I don't know. Because he's not looking down. It doesn't appear like God's saying, are you guys informal or formal? It doesn't appear like he's saying, what's the count? What's the, how many of y'all running down in Corinth? How many folks are at the church? It appears to me like he looks at the church and says, are they loving? Because that's what really matters. Are, are each, Is each member valued? Do the lesser members receive special value? And do all the parts work together like a healthy body? Because that's what it seems like he matters. It matters if there's 10 people in the room, are they all functioning together? If there's 10,000 in the church, are they all functioning together? That seems to be the biblical evaluation of the church. Are we building off one gift? Is everybody trying to fit into a mold? Is it a cookie cutter church where everybody looks like a Corinthian Christian, where you have these certain external things that are put to the top and really define the Christian life, certain gifts, it's tongues that determine the Christian life. Is that what's going on? Or is it, man, there's a breadth of gifts. I can't really tell you what the Corinthian Christian is like. Which Christian? They all have different gifts in the church. That's what Paul emphasizes here, what is Jesus exalted as Lord in the church? That's what he's concerned with. Not their style, not their building. Don't know anything about their building. Not the name of their leader, not their marketing plan, not how many people are there. All these kinds of things. What what is matters is not how many people, but do they love? What are they like? Do they love Jesus? Is Jesus promoted? Is there a unity? This is how the church is evaluated. And this is how lives are evaluated. And this is challenging to all of us because we are called to love as Jesus loves us. Now, here's the really good news, and I'm done. The really good news is that God doesn't just cause us to a, call us to a standard and say, hey, good luck on that. Like, love everybody like Jesus does. Put that on a list and start doing it now. He changes our hearts because when Christ is central and the gospel is central, the work of the Lord is central, the Holy Spirit begins to change our hearts. It's an internal change. The more we pursue Jesus genuinely, the more we understand Christ, the more the scripture takes residence in our heart, the more the good news sounds in our ears, the more our heart will start to change as we apply that truth to be more loving. Sometimes it's very, very slow. And that's why the first thing is love is patient. Because sometimes it's very, very slow with other people. (laughs) That was a joke. Sometimes it's very, very slow with us. And so this is 
the truth that God begins to work in us. God empowers us by his spirit. We've had a whole chapter on the Holy Spirit. How are we supposed to love other people? By the power of the spirit. So the word of God shows us Jesus Christ as we think about and respond to Jesus Christ and meditate on him. Think about what he has done for us, how he's laid down his life for us. Then he begins to empower us by the spirit to lay down our lives for others, to use our gifts for others, to pursue love, to pursue Christ. And secondarily, to eagerly desire to use whatever gifts God would give for the benefit of others. And the good news, he doesn't just call us to something and say, grit your teeth and make it happen. He calls us to something by showing us Christ and by empowering us to do it. He enables us to do what he tells us to do. That's grace. We respond. We, we take steps. Jesus doesn't make a meal to take over to someone who needs a meal. You actually have to cook that meal, but the Holy spirit is the one who can give you the heart and desire to serve in that way. Jesus doesn't show up and verbally speak in the small group, but he has spoken in the scripture and can put a scripture on your mind that you can share with somebody else or a word of encouragement to build them up. So we do have to step forward, but he empowers, he works, he softens our heart. He gives us his vision for people so that we can increasingly love one another. That's the vision that he gives us in chapter 13, beginning here for the church. If we use gifts and sacrifice without love, it means nothing. But if we look at Christ or changed by Christ and use the gifts he gives and use the talents and abilities he gives to serve others, it means everything because he is glorified and people experience his love through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, and God, this is such a high dream, a high vision, a high goal for us, Lord, that we would be a people that love, that we would be people in our individual lives that love, uh, and particularly love those who we have trouble loving. And we just pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us in an increasing way, that we would see the sacrifice of our Savior, and that we would cherish what you've done for us, that we would think of you and sing to you, pray to you, Lord, worship you, meditate upon you, and that as we see you more, we would turn from the various sins of selfishness and pride and arrogance, and we'd turn to you, that you'd change our heart to be more like you. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 